We are nearing uh, the end of our current sermon series, uh, What Jesus Looks For in a Church, which has been a study of Christ's messages to the seven churches in Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3. Uh, just two sermons remaining, maybe three if I don't finish this one today, uh, but uh, today we will look at lessons learned uh, from Christ's messages to the seven churches. It, this will sort of serve as a uh, review uh, to highlight uh, some of the key truths. And then next Sunday, uh, we will conclude the series uh, with a study on the overcomer promises. Uh, these are promises that Jesus gave to encourage believers uh, to remain faithful to him in their present trials in light of future rewards. Now this morning, we're going to begin by looking at what we learn about Jesus, what we learned about Jesus in his messages to the seven churches. You will remember that each of the seven messages begins with a personal description of Jesus Christ. And most of those descriptions are drawn directly from the absolutely stunning and magnificent vision of Christ that John receives in Revelation uh, chapter 1. Uh, just to remind you of that vision, he hears this voice, he turns to look, and he says he sees these seven golden lampstands, and those golden lampstands represent what? The churches, exactly, the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And he sees Jesus standing up in the midst of those seven churches. And then you're given this incredible description of Jesus in relationship to the church. How he does stand up for the church. And not only stands up for the church, but to strengthen the church, to sanctify the church, to speak to the church, to secure his church. Uh, to save his church, and to shine through his church. Uh, we need to always remember that Jesus established the church to be his eternal bride. It's a beautiful, beautiful thought. His eternal bride. We are his helpmate to assist him in overseeing and administrating his eternal kingdom. That is our destiny as the church. Now, the true or universal church is not, of course, a building. It's, it's not a place, but it consists of all God's people who have experienced salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And, of course, there are many local expressions of the larger universal church, like the seven churches that are found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, like here, the Edgewood Baptist Church family, local expressions of the church where we gather to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and then in our communities to walk as He walked to serve others and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus promised... I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, as we look at these descriptions of Christ in the context of Revelation, 
we need to realize that the question facing Christians at the time Revelation was written was this. This is what was on the mind of every believer, every follower of Christ. Will the church survive? Christians at this time were literally viewed as the scum of the earth that needed to be purged from the face of the earth. And Rome had the military might to do exactly that. All of the apostles, every one of them had been put to death for their faith in Christ, except the apostle John. And he had been exiled to the island of Patmos where he was a prisoner of the state. Uh, Many of the churches were forced uh, to go underground for their worship in the catacombs. Uh, They were suffering slander, imprisonment, the confiscation of their property. Uh, They were even suffering martyrdom. They were afraid. They did not know what the future held for them. But it was not just persecution threatening the survival of the church. As we have discovered, walking through our study of the seven churches, false teachers had infiltrated many of the churches, sowing discord, uh, deception, uh, even immorality. Uh, The churches were also bleeding from self-inflicted wounds, from their own sin, from their own failure. Uh, They were finding it easier to compromise their faith in Christ than to pay the price of allegiance to Jesus. As a result, they were in danger of losing their zeal for Christ, like the church at Ephesus, and also to become lukewarm, like the church we saw last week in Laodicea. But worse than all of that struggle was this. They were struggling with disappointment with God. Did Jesus birth the church only to abandon her? In their suffering, in their pain, they were struggling with that question. What was Christ's response? The vision in Revelation chapter 1. Abandon his church? No. Jesus is standing up for his churches, in the midst of his churches. He is holding There are pastors in his right hand. You remember those seven stars represented the seven lead pastors of the churches. A wonderful picture of security. Coming out of Christ's mouth was what? A sharp two-edged sword by which he would save his bride, the church, and slay her enemies. And what was the apostle John's response to the glorified Christ? Do you remember what his response was? We're told that when I saw him, this is what John wrote, when I saw him, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as a dead man. There's only one appropriate response to the glorified Christ, to fall at his feet as a dead man, dead to your preferences, dead to your will to follow Jesus wherever he leads, regardless the cost. Only the church who falls at Jesus' feet as dead, will know the power of the resurrection. And the church does not exist to please itself, but to please the Lord we serve. And it's in pleasing Him 
that we embrace everlasting joy. Now follow in your notes as we begin by reviewing what we learned about Jesus in the way that he actually describes himself to each of the seven churches. Now in the first five churches, the description is taken directly from the vision of the glorified Christ in Revelation 1. Church at Ephesus, he described himself as Jesus, the protector and authority of the church, who is constantly walking with us, observing our lives and testimonies. Uh, You might want to open your Bible to uh, Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3, and uh, let's look at this description in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, that he uh, gives of himself to the church at Ephesus. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right, the one who holds the seven stars, holds those pastors in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands representing the churches, says this. You know, it's interesting to note that the first three pastors in Ephesus were the Apostle Paul, Timothy, and the Apostle John. Quite a group. Uh, But as great as those men were, it was Jesus who held them and the church in his right hand. Jesus alone is the sovereign ruler of the church. He is always present. He's walking in our midst, constantly examining our lives. I sort of like to envision right now Jesus even walking through the aisles of our church, observing, looking into our hearts, examining our lives, desiring to work His will and His way in us. Uh, He desires, of course, to be our first, our greatest love. But sadly, as we discovered, the church in Ephesus, in their busyness, had left their first love. We must never forget that Jesus is at the hub of the church. And we are the spokes connected to the hub, and our lives are what? To radiate around Him. Jesus desires to be at the center of our lives and our church. Is Jesus the center of your life? Is He? Look at the church at Smyrna and how He described Himself. Jesus, the eternal one who died at the hands of wicked men, yet rose from the grave conquering death and evil. Look at Revelation chapter 2 verse 8. He says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who is dead and has come to life, says this. To a church who is being severely persecuted, Jesus reminds them that although he was the eternal God, he became a man. And a man who willingly subjected himself to the rejection and to the persecution from evil men. Therefore, he's communicating to this church. He fully understands what they're going through. He feels their pain. And he's telling them, even if you face death in your allegiance to me, the one who conquered death is with you. The one who promised, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. In other words, he's saying, you don't need to fear Because the ultimate victory is yours. I think of the Apostle Paul's great statement. To live Christ 
To die, what? Gain. Gain. And what comfort should this bring us today? Jesus endured. Think about this now. Jesus endured the very worst that man could do to him. Yet he conquered it through his resurrection. And he brought good out of it. Salvation offered to mankind. And he will do the same for you in your trials. If you will trust him. If you will obey him. Will you? Look at the third church, Pergamum. He described himself as one who examines us on the basis of the two-edged sword of God's Word, which delivers those who obey while judging those who disobey. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now remember, this was a church who had compromised God's Word. They were tolerating false teachers, false doctrine. And he reminds them, now wait a minute, you're going to be judged on the basis of my Word, and so will we. In Hebrews 4.12 we read, For the Word of God is living, it's active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You cannot claim to love the living Word unless you are obeying His written Word. And Jesus told us this much. He said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will what? He will keep my Word. He will obey my Word. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, The one who says, Oh, I've come to know Jesus, but does not keep, does not obey His commandments, that person is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps, whoever obeys my word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. So how about you? Are you learning, loving, and living God's word? And are you doing all of that motivated by your love for the living word and as an expression of worship to him? Look at the church at Thyatira and how he described himself. Jesus is the Son of God whose eyes see all. Nothing can be hidden from him and no one in the church can escape his purifying judgment. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatirite, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. Now remember, this was the church that was guilty of moral impurity. And Jesus reminds them of three things. Number one, His divine authority over the church. He's the Son of God. He's the Lord of His church. Number two, His laser-like eyes who examines and sees all things. And third, His burnished or glowing bronze feet which tramples out impurity in His church. One day, every believer, 
will stand face to face with Jesus in what is called the judgment seat of Christ. Now, a believer, a true believer's salvation is secure in Christ. Once caught by God, there is no escape. The purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is to examine believers on how we lived our lives for Christ to either receive reward or lose rewards. I often reflect on 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. The apostle wrote, And now, little children, abide in Him. Abide in Jesus, so that, listen now, when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. He's speaking that to believers. He says, believers, little children that I love, abide in Jesus, so that when He appears, you may have confidence standing before Him instead of shrinking away from Him in shame. Let me ask you, if you were to stand before the judgment seat of Christ today as a believer, would you stand before Him in confidence, or would you have to shrink away from Him in shame because of the sin that you're committing? Look at the fifth church, the, fifth, the church at Sardis. Jesus revealed Himself as one who works in His church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and godly leaders. Look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now remember, this was the church that Jesus said, Hey, you might have a name that lives, but you are dead. This was simply a morgue that had a steeple on it. And what he does, he directs them to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We saw in that study that that reference to seven spirits of God doesn't mean that there are seven Holy Spirits. It's talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead who dwells in every believer's life. And we are commanded to be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. And the issue in the filling of the Holy Spirit is not you, not the church, getting more of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit getting more of us under His control. And there are two fundamental ways we block the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In Ephesians 4.30 we read, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 19 we read, do not quench the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we are guilty of doing things we should not do or having attitudes which displease Him. We quench the Holy Spirit when we neglect or refuse to do things that we should be doing. So the question is, are you grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit in your life? And if you are, the message here is confess your sin, forsake your sin, obey God's Word and the promptings of the Holy Spirit, and be revived through the person and power of the Holy Spirit. Look at the sixth church, wonderful church of Philadelphia. You remember this church received no rebuke, only commendation, and Jesus reveals Himself as the one who is holy, trustworthy, and sovereign in the affairs of His people. 
Uh, Revelation 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. In other words, what's he doing? He's giving them encouragement, this wonderful, wonderful, precious church. He's encouraging them that they can count on him. They can count on him to be holy, trustworthy, and sovereign. He is holy. They can count on him to be separate from all evil, completely free from all corruption. He is trustworthy. They can count on him to keep every promise he's made to them in his word. He is sovereign. They can count on him to open and shut doors in order to direct their lives. And even though, remember we saw that Philadelphia was a very small church, he acknowledged that they had very little power. Uh, But what he's saying is, hey, you can trust me to open doors of service for you, to advance the gospel of Christ. And folks, today it's the same. Every day in our lives, every day in this church, we encounter divine opportunities. And yes, often brilliantly disguised as human impossibilities. Why? So God gets all the glory, as we sang at the very beginning of this service. The question is, will we seize the opportunity God gives us? When He opens the door, will we go through it to serve others and advance His kingdom? And if we do, the message to the church in Philadelphia is, He will trust us. And he will provide us even greater opportunities of service. And then look at the seventh church, the church at Laodicea. Jesus is the creator of all things, and he's the final word in all matters related to the church. Look at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Now remember, this was the church that was what? conceited. They were complacent. He called them lukewarm. And what he's telling them is, now wait a minute, you need to understand, I am the true witness, and I am about to tell the truth about your spiritual condition. And if you will repent of your sin, and if you'll submit to me, even as I spoke creation into existence, I can bring new life to this church. That was his message to them. And today, God's Mercy is extended to you. It's extended to me, to all of us. But we must accept. It all begins where? We have to accept God's spiritual diagnosis of our spiritual condition. And we have to be willing to follow His prescription for remedy, for healing, which, of course, is always through what? The repentance and obedience of faith. So that's just a a review of how Jesus describes himself to these seven churches. And folks, let me just make a recommendation. uh, We went through that very quickly. I would strongly recommend uh, you taking these sermon notes and take some time to reflect on Jesus, who he is, how he describes himself in relationship to us and our church that we bring our lives in harmony with Him. And then for review, 
moving on, what Jesus looks for in a church. And this was the heart of the lesson. Uh, we entered this lesson uh, asking the simple question, if Jesus were shopping for a church in our community, what would he be looking for? Uh, what kind of church would he want to belong to, become a member of? What, what's, what would he, what's important to him? What does he find valuable? And we clearly see uh, the answer to that question in his messages to these seven churches. Church at Ephesus, the church who gave Jesus everything but the one thing he wanted, what did we discover Jesus is looking for? Love. Love for Christ. Love for Christ. Jesus said in his earthly ministry, the greatest commandment given to man is what? To love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Jesus will never be satisfied with your life, with my life, with this church, until He is preeminent in our lives, until He is at the very center of our lives, at the very center of our church, having no rival where there is no refusal of Christ and where we never retreat from what He asks us to do. That's what He's looking for. Deep, deep, passionate, affectionate love for Him. The church in Smyrna, what do we discover? This was the church the devil tried to intimidate through the persecution, through the suffering. And what we learn is he's looking for faithfulness in suffering. Not just love for Christ, but we demonstrate that love by remaining faithful in suffering. You know, it was great to worship Christ earlier in this service by singing praises. By singing Psalm 9, by singing those wonderful praise choruses. But do you know what is the truest test of worship? Are you still singing when you're suffering? When everything's falling apart? When you're in pain? When you're perplexed? That's the greatest test of our love for Christ, is how we respond to Him in adversity, how we respond to Him in suffering and in persecution. Do we see that as an opportunity to demonstrate just how deep our love for Him is? That although you may take everything else from me because you cannot rob me of Jesus, I know joy. A joy that runs deeper than the pain, deeper than the grief, deeper than the hurt. What do we learn from the church at Pergamum that he's looking for? This was, remember, the church that was too open-minded, that became tolerant of false teaching. And, of course, very simply, we saw he's looking for obedience to God's Word. So love for Christ. And a love for Christ that produces faithfulness in suffering. And not only does it produce faithfulness in suffering, but obedience to God's Word. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I tell you? Why? How can there be that kind of disconnect? As we saw earlier, He said, what? If you love me, you will what? Obey my commandments. Look at Thyatira. 
and see what uh, we discover he's looking for. Remember, this was the church that was in bed with Jezebel, the church where some of its members were guilty of gross uh, immorality. And we discover he's looking for holiness of character. So love for Christ that produces faithfulness in suffering, obedience to God's Word, holiness of character. Let me just make this very, very simple. What's the greatest compliment that you can ever give to any person? I'll tell you what it is. To go to that person and say, I want to be just like you. And I'm going to give my life to watch you, to follow your example, because your life is worthy of emulation. And that's what Jesus is wanting for every one of his children. Because of our love for him, because of how much we value him, because of the stunning glory, beauty, and majesty of his life, where our greatest passion, our greatest pursuit, our greatest desire in life is to be like him, to keep our eyes fixed on him, to follow him by his grace and power working in and through us. What do we learn that he's looking for in the church of Sardis? Remember, this was the church of the living dead. He had no commendation for this church, only rebuke. And the way, this is how I would state it. What he's looking for is faith applied to life. And let me tell you why I use that phrase. In his message to this church, he makes this statement. He says, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of God. I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of God. And I think what he's referring to is, oh, they hear God's Word. The problem is they're not doing it. They're not applying it. And folks, whenever that happens, it creates a very deceptive atmosphere. You sort of develop this thing, well, if I know God's Word, then I must be spiritual. I must be a very wonderful believer. And from God's perspective, He says, no, you don't really know my word until you what? Practice it. Until you obey it. I think of Hebrews 4, 2. Listen to this. It says, the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So you could be sitting here today, you could hear the message, and it may not profit you anything because of you not uniting what you hear with faith. And faith is what? Trusting obedience, stepping out in faith and obeying God's Word. What did James say? He says, don't be hearers only, but be doers of God's Word. What do we learn that he's looking for in the church of Philadelphia? This is the church, of course, where Jesus would choose to be a member. Uh, This was the brightest spot in uh, all of the seven churches. And what we discover there, he's looking for a bold faith to advance the gospel. A bold faith to advance the gospel. The priority of the church, we cannot ever lose sight of this. The priority of the church in terms of our, the mission Jesus has given us on earth is to live and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We are the body of Christ to walk as he walked to seek and save those who are lost. And folks, believe me, if that is the mission he has given our church, he will be faithful to open doors of opportunity. The question is, will we be looking for those opportunities? And looking for those opportunities, will we then seize those opportunities and go through them? And when he finds a church that won't, he shuts the door. But if he finds a little church like Philadelphia, a little church that had little power, but they were willing, they were available, they were, they were going to obey. When he saw this church and he opened a door, they went through it. He said, I'll just keep opening doors for this church. And then Laodicea, what's he looking for? Remember, this was the church, sadly, who made Jesus sick with their lukewarm condition. And very simply, he's looking for wholehearted surrender to him. Nothing less is worthy. Nothing is, is, is worthy of him. It only can be wholehearted surrender to Christ. And what do I mean by wholehearted surrender to Christ? It means I totally submit to his authority in every area of my life. And not only do I submit to his authority, I give my life to serve his agenda. It's not about Andy Merritt. It's not about my welfare. It's not about my interests. It's not about my dreams coming true. It's about his interest. It's about his mission. So to submit to his authority, serve his agenda, and I live to seek his approval. It's not about the applause of men, but it's about getting the applause of Christ. And I do all of that, and here's the key. And I do all of that, not so much out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of sheer delight in Christ. It's a joy to serve Him. It's an honor to serve Him. It's a privilege to serve Him in light of who He is and what He's done for me. So, put all that together. What's Jesus looking for here at Edgewood Baptist Church? What does He desire to see? And remember, when we talk about the church, we're not talking about buildings. We're talking about it consists of what? People. So it comes down to, are we demonstrating these things in each of our lives? Love for Christ, faithfulness in suffering, obedience to God's Word, holiness of character, faith applied to life, a bold faith to advance the gospel, and wholehearted surrender to Christ. And then very quickly, and I will do this quickly, this is a great little tool to use to evaluate. Seven steps to spiritual decline, as seen in Christ's messages to the seven churches. Now, now what I've done, now many of these churches, of course, received rebuke. And so you can clearly see what the decline was. Of course, in Smyrna and uh, Philadelphia, there was no rebuke, only commendation. So I just sort of take their strength and just look at the opposite. And I, I, and I, I think you'll catch the drift here. Where does all spiritual decline begin? Neglect of worship that we see in Ephesus. Neglect of worship. They were really, really busy doing a lot of ministry for Christ, doing a lot of activity, but they had lost the sense of wonder. They had lost the sense of majesty and the grandeur of Jesus Christ. And when I say worship, I'm not talking about singing praises. That is the way we express our worship. But at the heart of worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, looking back on the mercies of God, who He is, what He did for you, that you present as a once and for all sacrifice your body, 
everything that you are, all that you possess, you present that as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of spiritual worship. Not to be conformed, squeezed into the mold, attitudes, values, perspectives, character, and conduct of this world, but to be transformed through the renewal of your mind so that you would prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's worship. And when you neglect worship, listen to now, this all it's inevitable. We've all experienced, I've experienced this. You've experienced this. Once you neglect worship, The value of Christ will begin to diminish in your life and other things will come into your life and become more important. And that brings us to Smyrna. Although there is no rebuke, he makes this little spank. Don't fear. But folks, when you neglect worship, when you're not focused on the infinite worth and value of Jesus Christ... I guarantee you're going to find yourself struggling with fear and anxiety. If you are struggling with fear, a fear to stand up for Jesus and be counted for Him, if you're struggling with anxiety, the problem, first and foremost, is neglect of worship. The Apostle Paul said, I've counted all things lost, all things lost, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Yea, I count all things as garbage, as rubbish, in comparison to knowing and following Him. See, there is a man that is lost in the wonder of Jesus. And he sees the wonder, the value, the worth of Christ. He's led to do one thing, lose everything in view of knowing Him, following Him, adoring Him honoring Him. But when you neglect worship, the telltale sign that that's happening is fear. And especially fear and making a stand for Jesus outside the walls of this church, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, at school, wherever it might be. And where does fear of suffering lead? What we find in Pergamum, compromise. If you don't nip this in the bud right here, if you, don't, if, you, if you don't recognize, wait a minute now, this fear, first, my, my problem here is I need to get back focused on Jesus, His worth and value. And if I don't do that, fear of suffering is always going to lead to compromise so that I can avoid suffering. In other words, if I'm afraid to make a stand for Jesus because what might come, well, then I'll just avoid doing what I should do. And we saw this in the message of Christ to many of the seven churches. This fear of suffering where they compromised their walk and their relationship with Christ. And then compromise, what's the next step? We see it in Thyatira, disobedience. Compromise always leads to disobedience. And then where does disobedience take you? The church at Sardis, hypocrisy. You got a name that lives... Oh, you put on a good mask, you put on a good show, but reality, you're dead. You're just projecting an image, but there's no reality behind the image. And then, where does that lead? Self-serving. And then, you know, we see at that point, Christianity becomes transformed. You dumb it down. Where it's all about you. I mean, your prayer life evolves only around you and your loved ones. There's no sense of God's kingdom, no sense of God's mission. 
and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ and to win a lost world to Him. It, it, it's, it's all about using God to get what you want, for you finding comfort, for you finding happiness, for you finding joy. It's this wealth, health, prosperity gospel that has infected the Western culture today. And then what's the last step in spiritual decline? Just complacency. And remember, it was a complacency that was filled with conceit, totally blind to the fact of their spiritual condition. So I give you that tool for you to evaluate your life and to see where you are and to recognize when you begin going down that road to spiritual decline, it's never going to be stagnant. You're going to move downward and downward unless you nip it in the bud, turn to Jesus, and get back to worshiping Him. Father, thank You. I trust for what's been a very practical message as we've uh, reviewed uh, some of the lessons learned in Revelation 2 and 3. Give us the grace now to apply uh, this truth to our lives. Not just have an informed faith, but a faith that transforms our lives as we look to You and we trust You. For it's in Christ's name we do pray.